As we start into Mark chapter 15, we're coming to the very end of the gospel. It's hard to believe. I know some of you are so disappointed, right? So disappointed. Uh, After tonight's sermon, we'll only have two sermons left, I believe. Famous last words of preachers. Just two sermons left, I think, uh, in the book. I have enjoyed the opportunity to work through the gospel. I'm thankful to God for this in my own walk with God. It's been steadying. It's been strengthening. It's been convicting, challenging, encouraging, all the above. Uh, Just to be able to spend uh, months focusing on the person of, of Christ, my admiration for him has grown. I think my knowledge and understanding of who he is and what he did has grown as well. And today, that's my heart as well. Uh, We're going to come across the text where we work through the second part of Jesus' trial. Last week, we saw the Jewish trial where Jesus stands before the Sanhedrin, a group of 70 religious leaders and the high priest named Caiaphas. He stands boldly. And he stands in the midst of a rigged trial. I mean, it was a mess from the very beginning. They were trying to find ways to put him to death. The nature of Jesus' powerful witness and testimony was emphasized by Mark in another way, however, in just describing it. He also talked about another man who was undergoing a trial and who was a witness as well, but a bad witness. That man was Simon Peter, who in the courtyard of the same high priest house was being tried by one little servant girl who looks at him, stares at him, and then asks him, weren't you with him? And Peter fails miserably, and that's just done to emphasize the personal work of Jesus. Today, we're going to look at the trial uh, from the Roman perspective in Mark 15, 1 through 15. As we do that, my heart in doing this with you would be not to emphasize all of the evil characters in the villainous account of Jesus' trials and his crucifixion. I mean, as I read through these books, it's very easy for me to grow in hate and disrespect toward all of the evil people who mistreated Jesus. But instead of looking at them, dwelling much upon them today, I want us to look again at Jesus, and I want us to look at the Father's great love for us as well. So as we come to the trial, the Roman trial before Pilate in Mark 15, the section goes from verses 1 through 15. You can know that in your Bible because at the end of verse 1, it says, they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him over. Mark uses a word, delivered him over to Pilate, which he uses again at the end of verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released them uh, for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. So what Mark does in this section, he, he frames it all. He, he starts back in Mark 14 with Judas handing over, delivering over Jesus to the Sanhedrin, the group of 70 leaders. That now he's going to be handed over to the Roman governor, Pilate, and then Pilate will hand him over to cruel soldiers, and to crucifixion. So as we go uh, throughout here, we'll see uh, Jesus' Roman trial. I want to look first at the background of verse 1. The background, look there in your Bibles. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. The night before this, they're in the high priest's 
uh, house, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin met and they condemned Jesus. They began hitting him and mocking him. They put a bag over his head, hit him and asking him to tell them who prophesied. Now they've, they're coming the following day to get everything in order. Their original charge was blasphemy. This man claims to be God or God's son. Had that been true, that would be enough to condemn him under Jewish law. But the Sanhedrin had two problems. Their first problem was they were not allowed to execute someone because of their Roman captivity. Being under Roman law, the Jewish people no longer had the legal right to execute or kill someone. They didn't have uh, what some would call the power of the sword. Only Rome had that. And so they must take their charges before a Roman governor to have Jesus killed. But that leads us to their second problem. Okay. The second problem for them was blasphemy against the Jewish God was not a Roman crime. It's not a Roman crime. So while the Sanhedrin would be willing to crucify him for that, not Romans. So in verse 1, we, we see that the text says that they held a consultation. They had a consultation. They're trying to figure out how, how when we go to Pilate, is this going to work? And it becomes obvious, especially as you look at other Gospels, that what they do is they develop some new charges to also put against Jesus. So for instance, I'm going to read you one verse from a fuller account in Luke's Gospel where we see that they brought three charges against Jesus. Okay, you don't have to turn there, but Luke 23, verse 2 says this, And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man, number one, misleading our nation, number two, for, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. See how genius that is for them? Although Jesus never said that. He won't allow us to give tribute or taxes to Caesar. And then number three, this man is saying that he himself is Christ. Then they clarify what that means. The king. He's saying that he's the king. So their accusations go from blasphemy against the character of God to treason against the Roman government. He's claiming to be king. They emphasize here that Jesus is supposedly leading a nationalistic uprising that might threaten Roman rule. So the Sanhedrin here are deceptive and plotting, and it's not going to stop in the near future. Uh, we know that this is a way, even in Mark's text, that things develop for, uh, in the very next verse, verse 2, the first thing that Pilate questions him about is, are you the king of the Jews? So let's look at Pilate's line of questioning starting in verses uh, 2 through 5, verse 2. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Here in a moment of irony, the reader of Mark's gospel is beginning to figure out who this person really is, but it's, it's coming from the lips of his enemies. Here in Mark chapter 15, this, this question that Pilate asks becomes the theme of the whole chapter. So you're just looking at this as a reader. 
You see this phrase over and over again, the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews. So look down in your Bible at verse 9, for instance. He answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Look in your Bible at verse 12. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? Verse 18, verse 18, they begin to salute him, soldiers. Hail, king of the Jews. Verse 26, the inscription of the charge against him read this, the king of the Jews. And then verse 32, in mocking the scribes and Sanhedrin say to him, let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down from the cross. This becomes the theme of the chapter. So Pilate asks the question and Jesus affirms that you've said so. That leads the chief priests then in verse 3 to start, they start throwing mud at Jesus. Okay, not literally, but metaphorically. They do what one scholar said, he said it this way, they use the buckshot approach. They throw at Jesus all kinds of accusations, anything they can think of trying to make something stick. But Jesus does not offer any more explanation. He's quiet. The passivity of Jesus here, I think, is shocking to me as a reader. I mean, throughout the book, Jesus has been doing powerful things, demonstrating divine strength. He heals the sick. He overwhelms demons. He calms storms. He feeds thousands. He raises the dead. He has the power to do something here, but instead... He does and says nothing. Here Mark's great initiator of divine strength and power becomes the willing subject of others' actions. The text says that this shocks Pilate. It shocks him. For other men, I'm sure at this point, when standing before the Roman governor has the ability to execute them on a cross, other men would be screaming, or loud or indignant in their self-justifying claims, but not Jesus. So Pilate is amazed. And men and women, as we stop here and we think about Jesus and how he deals with this, I think we should be amazed too. We should be amazed. I mean, if you, if you really stop and think about this, I mean, how is this possible? How could God, God, stand before corrupt men like this. This is the eternal God being charged by crooked and wicked men and women. This is the creator God, the one who brought the world, all of the universes into existence, standing before small, puny human beings. I say, how amazing. And what an example for us. What an example. What an example of patient suffering. As we think of this, it's interesting to me that Simon Peter in his book will often use the suffering of Jesus and the way he endured suffering as a model for those who would follow Jesus Christ. Okay, so don't get me wrong. We can defend ourselves in legal accusations like in the law and even Paul the Apostle will do that later, but there is to be in our lives a meekness 
and a lowliness of heart. Even when all of the details are not known or heard or brought into the case. J.C. Ryle said this. I thought this was really powerful. He said, nothing in the Christian character glorifies God as much as patient suffering. Patient suffering. And so I ask you, as we consider Christ here for a moment, what he's enduring, are you a patient sufferer? Is there a willingness in your heart at times to turn the other cheek if necessary and suffer the wrong if it brings glory to the Father? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Peter says it this way. He says, for to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you. And then listen to what he says. Leaving you an example so that you might follow his steps. And so I said, when we come in here, I don't want us turning all of our attention to Pilate and Barabbas and all these evil characters. I want us to look at Jesus. And when we look at Jesus in this trial, we see patient endurance for the glory of the Father. We can learn from him. We can learn from him. What puts Pilate in a difficult spot? Jesus is not answering. And so in verse 6, he comes up with another plan. He he gives the people a a choice. Make a decision between Barabbas and Jesus. So look in your Bible, verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. And Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Here Pilate finds a way, he thinks, to get out of the trial. He suggests releasing Jesus, I think, because he understood that the Sanhedrin, they were just simply envious or jealous of Jesus and the attention he was receiving. So Pilate suggests that he can honor his normal protocol at Passover. He was uh, a ruler of the people, and so he would, at Passover, he would release one, one prisoner every year. John's Gospel talks to us about this, tells us about this. This is fitting for Passover, if you know the history of Passover. So uh, Pilate does this. So what he's doing in, in modern terms, it's like he's, he's, he's willing to issue a presidential pardon. Someone's going to get out of jail. You choose. Jesus or Barabbas. And the people demand the release of Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber, a murderer, and, and Luke's gospel tells us he was a notable criminal. The people knew who he was. It may be, I I agree with many of the scholars who come to this text and they think that 
Barabbas was probably joined in alliance with the other two men who will soon be hanging on the left and the right of Jesus. The other two criminals, Barabbas may have been joined and aligned with them in the crime. And so Pilate offers a choice between Jesus and a blatant criminal, and the people choose the criminal. I want to make a few observations before we go to the table here. Uh, first of all, I want you, just want to show you, I mean, as you're reading through this text in these last few verses, you can see things are escalating pretty quickly. I, you can see that in that Pilate asked them three questions, and you look at his questions, you see the way the people respond. It's just getting really out of hand. The first question, verse 9, right in the middle, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Okay, legitimate question, people respond. Then verse 12, middle of that verse, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They said, they want Barabbas, what should I do? And then verse 14, why, what evil has he done? I mean, by the time you get to the third question, the crowd no longer wants or offers any explanations. They don't want explanations, they want blood. They want Jesus' blood. They won't even answer that last question and they just keep yelling over and over again, I think, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So things are escalating quickly, and Pilate is losing control. He's losing control here. I think he loses control when he asks the crowds what he should do. I think it's, a, it's an error that he commits, right, as a leader. It's, it's going to backfire, and it did completely, so that now the crowd is nearly riotous. That's when we find out truly what kind of leader Pilate is in verse 15. In verse 15, he releases Barabbas and delivers Jesus, and the text says he does it in order to satisfy the crowd. One commentator described it this way. He says, Pilate is a ruler who holds his finger to the wind just to see which way the wind is blowing, what are the wishes of the crowd, and then he caves to the whims of the crowd. There's one last observation I want you to make today, especially as we prepare for the table, and that is the last action of Pilate here. So Pilate gives in to the crowd. He has Jesus scourged, and he delivers or hands him over to the soldiers. And for a moment, because I want to learn from Jesus, I want to consider what that scourging was. Here I'll rely upon the research and work of a, a well-known scholar, his name is William Lane, who describes scourging to us. He said, a Roman scourging was a terrifying punishment. The delinquent was stripped, bound to a post or a pillar, or sometimes thrown to the ground and was beaten by a number of guards until his flesh hung in bleeding shreds. Lane says the, the instrument indicated by the Markan text, the dreaded flagellum, was a scourge consisting of leather straps plated with several pieces of bone or lead so as to form a chain. So men and women, what happens here is at least two guards take shifts in handing out leashes and whipping 
and scourging Jesus. Flesh and muscle would hang in strips. Make no mistake about it, men and women, if, I think if seeing Jesus for us, I think it's even the very sight of seeing Jesus would cause many of us to pass out. It would shock our modern sensibilities. What type of execution? What sort of barbaric, evil, wicked, torturous men would do this sort of thing? I want you to consider, though, as we close our sermon, how hard this would be to watch someone you care about. Think of the perspective of God the Father. How hard would it be for you to stand by and watch someone do this to a close relationship to you? Your husband, your wife, your child. Yet the soldiers have no care for this. They play with Jesus like a cat plays with a mouse. No heart, no concern, just murderous brutality. As we close, I ask you this. How could this happen? In this passage, we see the very worst of humanity. Evil characters. Pilate, soldiers, Sanhedrin. But men and women, we also see the very best of God. His love. His determined commitment to forgive sins. We can't understand the wickedness of the men, and we can draw our attention and focus on them, but we also cannot even begin to grasp God's love for us and mercy to forgive our sins. As we come to the Lord's table today, let's consider what actually, actually drives things here. God the Father's determined love for humanity. A few years ago, I was on an airplane, and I got into a conversation with a woman next to me. She found out what I did, and she explained that she just could not believe Christianity. And so I asked her, why? Why can't you believe it? And she said, because she could not understand how God could send his son, his son, to die in a terrible way, a crucifixion. I remember her saying on the plane, how is that loving? My answer was that there must have been something very important that drove him to do it. She replied, well, what in the world could be that important? And I said, his desire to save many, his great love for millions of human beings, his determination to show mercy and grace to us. There's love at the cross.